G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RBC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or whatever generic fruit-based device. So we're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to the RBC Podcast. We don't ask for anything in return, but we'd be incredibly grateful if you could pop to the Apple Podcast or iTunes and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great. I'm sure there's other reviews uh, out there, but you can give that to other other podcasts. But it will really help our our metrics and uh, get this information out there to people who want to listen to it. Um, So today we've got uh, a special treat because we're joined not only by uh, by one person, but by two people. So so today we have with Professor Hattie Syme. Hello, Hattie. Hello. And uh, Professor David Church. Hello, Dom. And uh, I thought because uh, we had uh, a discussion at one point in the, in the clinic and I thought that maybe, uh, maybe this could uh, this would be, you know, reach a, a, wider, a wider audience about uh, the treatment for uh, animals with, with acute hypoadrenocortism crisis and also um, their ongoing management. So I thought it would be fair to ask you your, your both your both your opinions on on that, and we'll, we'll probably break it up just the, the acute um, treatment, uh, and then the uh, and then the chronic treatment. And in the interest of parity as well, probably I should say, whoever starts first can 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 uh, can uh, start uh, um, last for the next part, if that makes sense. Sounds fantastic. <laughs> yes. So, so uh, who, who would like to start about the initial uh, management of uh, uh, hypoadrenocortism? Well, I think we probably should um, uh, have beauty before um, beauty before whatever um, <laughs> ugliness. So that should be Hattie should start, don't you think? Absolutely, absolutely. <clears throat> okay. So if we've got a dog in acute adrenal crisis, I'm assuming that we're referring here to a dog with electrolyte disturbances that's collapsed and uh, that needs acute emergency management. Um, So putting aside for the moment those dogs that we do diagnose with hypoadrenocorticism that don't have any electrolyte disturbances, um, I think in terms of the acute management fluids are vital so in terms of managing the hyperkalemia and things actually if you if you give them um high rates of fluids that's going to address that um pretty effectively if you give the kidneys fluids the fluids are the kidneys are going to sort out most of your electrolyte disturbances so i'm often asked about you know whether we should give them insulin glucose or calcium or all those other things and actually I think in most Addisonian patients just giving them fluids at a relatively high rate is going to improve things pretty dramatically Um, and there are reasons because you know they have a tendency to be hypoglycemic even or to be overtly hypoglycemic that make me a little bit leery about giving them giving them insulin certainly and uh, they also can have relatively high calcium so although I'm a big fan of calcium say in managing the hyperkalemia of the block cat I'm less inclined to use it in the Addisonian patient would you agree with that David? I would agree with that entirely except for maybe the high fluid rate I think we have to be so be careful about how high a fluid rate we have because I don't think these patients are particularly tolerant of um high fluid rates for any length of time so I think we have to be careful about that but everything else I totally agree. So what sort of fluid rate would you go with? Well, so I'd, I'd, I'd like to try and start them on somewhere between 8 
nine mils per kilo per hour, so not a not a massive replacement fluid rate that would you had for a, say a circulatory collapsed or cardiovascularly circulatory collapsed dog. But then um, one of the things I like to do as well is to start with um, a, a a parenteral glucocorticoid mineralocorticoid replacement solution. So I'm I'm getting the fluids to help, but I'm also getting um, hormone replacement going fairly quickly. That's both glucocorticoid and mineralocorticoid. So I'm I'm less I guess in that situation I'm less worried about getting their flu the fluids into them that quickly because the fluids that we give them where it can be comfortable they're likely to be able to retain. You see, I mean, I you, think it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with parts of it. I there mean, I go. think it's interesting that you, well, in terms of the volume of fluids that you're talking about, you're saying, well, not giving them a lot, but then you're talking about giving them four or five times maintenance, which, which is probably what I would do too and I think perhaps we're a bit old-fashioned and we come from the sort of school where if a dog presented collapse then it got 90 mils per kilo fluid yeah. per hour yeah, and, yeah, and I think we've we've yeah. moved away from that sort of massive fluid loading so so we're talking about giving it relatively less but still a significant volume of uh, of fluids I so where where I guess we depart is is whether whether we give mineralocorticoids in yeah. in the first instance, and I've never felt a strong need to do that because my impression is that you give them fluids and they and they get better very fast. I give them glucocorticoids as soon as I've got the ACTH stim test submitted, um, um, yeah. but but I don't. I don't necessarily think that they need to have mineral corticoids. I guess because for a long time we didn't have, or I guess, yeah, I, I just, I never have done and I've never really felt that they were deficient in that because I think if you supply the sodium to the distal nephron, the distal nephron will do a very good job of exchanging it with potassium and sort out your electrolytes. Yep, yep. And I, I think that's where, as you say, that's where we, we depart, I suppose, and, and, but it's a really important point. You're absolutely right. What's, what's too much fluids or really aggressive fluids to somebody might not be necessarily. So that's why I'm trying to get a sort of a quantification around that mark of eight to nine. We should actually ask Dom as a criticalist, would, would you think that's a lot of fluids, just a reasonable amount, or what you'd give or recommend for a shocky patient? Yeah, I suppose that we we don't tend to. So you're absolutely right. We give a less of a volume as a as a as a bolus, if you like, in a hypovolemic patient. But I suppose with these guys, if we have an inkling that they might be Addisonian, they're not really going to respond to fluids in the same way as a as a as a hypovolemic patient otherwise would. I suppose probably because of that lack of steroid in, in them so they're yeah. hypertensive for other reasons so we so it depends on what we're chasing um but it sounds pretty pretty reasonable that, that sort of critical suggest. illness corticosteroid insufficiency sort of area that circulates in the critical the critical medicine literature um or the the critical care literature for humans and and about this sort of pressure resistant um shock type 
situation and do they have a relative hypoadrenocorticism? But let's, we probably don't want to get into that, do we? No, 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 but, but so... But these guys do. These absolutely do. No, no, these... Absolutely, absolutely. And and so um, I, I, I guess my, my enthusiasm is for us to use as um, physiological hormone replacement as we can so using cortisol as the um, replacement hormone as opposed to a selective glucocorticoid like dexamethasone is is um, what I what I, I guess I find most attractive because I'm using something that is uh, I know is going to have a mineralocorticoid component to it and notwithstanding your um, admirable confidence in the nephron of the kidney and why wouldn't you have um, to look after everything I guess coming at it from an endocrine point of view I'm thinking well let's not let him just do it or her do it all on her own we may as well um, help her along with some hormone um, support but it, you know that so that's why so in I suppose we should we should clarify for the listeners if that, what we should say so so I'm assuming that you would be thinking you give it a shot of dex whereas i'd be giving it a shot of or an infusion of cortisone and the the huge problem for giving them a the significant problem for giving them a shot of cortisone is you can't give them the cortisone until after they finish their acth stimulation test because the hydrocortisone that we're using is in fact cortisol and will completely cross-react in the assay and give you a very artificial number so you must never use hormone replacement of, of hydrocortisone until you've finished your ACTH stimulation test where you have no such um, restrictions if you use dexamethasone. That said, if it comes back and it doesn't have hypoadrenocorticism, you've got a drug on board that you probably wouldn't want to give to a dog with gastrointestinal tract disease and hypovolemia um, that's going to have a half-life of 40 hours, whereas the hydrocortisone's half-life is four to six but actually, that's immaterial if it takes you 48 hours to get the results of your ACTH stimulation test. Well, it would be if you only gave one shot of dexamethasone, but most of the time people give more than one shot of dexamethasone, so it's accumulating while it's going on. I would have thought, um, but I don't want to put words into anyone's mouth. As you could ask, if you give uh, dexamethasone, do you just give one, one shot initially, and, or do you give it a, as, a, as a daily injection? Well, I guess that depends on whether whether I've got the diagnosis com- confirmed. So I would normally give it a, a, a dose after I or during my ACTH stimulation test and then I would potentially dose it again in 24 hours. It depends. I mean, sometimes in 24 hours they're, they're already eating and yeah. things like that and then you can transfer them straight onto oral and sort of more of a long-term replacement but so maybe a second dose depending on whether they'd made that transition yet um but uh, but not a third and and what would uh, what would uh, professor church have to uh, explain to you to convince you that maybe a hydrocortisone infusion would be would be better i guess my objection is really more a pragmatic one than a physiological one so my physiologically I completely understand where it's coming from and it's got some mineralocorticoid and that's what patients are deficient in although I think you could get into interesting arguments about how long these dogs may have had mineralocorticoid deficiency and actually been trucking along 
okay and it's only that they get some sort of GI upset or something that precipitates some sort of crisis. I think my pragmatism comes from the sort of, well, they get they get better just fine with decks. And then given that we work in a hospital where we're teaching students who are going to go out into general practice and knowing that most general practices don't have hydrocortisone on their shelves. Now, David would argue that they should. But, I mean, I'd just say, well, you know, give them decks because then we're showcasing what they can do and what, what they're likely to have available to them in practice. So it's it's really a sort of pragmatic... Which is odd because uh, David uh, always strikes me as one of the most pragmatic people going around, right? Would you would you agree with that? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I guess... Um, no, I'd like to think I'm... I, I try and be as pragmatic as possible, as does Hattie. So we... we and, and there's no... There's absolutely no argument if... If, if you didn't have some um, hydrocortisone on the shelf, then you'd give them some dexamethasone. Uh, it's just... For me, it, it, it is um, potentially a more physiological replacement. So it's less, I don't really want to use the word brutal, but it's certainly less aggressive in terms of what we're trying to do. And as, as I'm keen to say, having a vial or two of Solucortef on the shelf is, is just like it's not a big deal. It, it costs £3.50 last time I checked in a retail price for 100 milligrams. And we're giving them intravenous... Um, uh, fluids anyway, so they can have an intravenous, either a bolus of, of so just give it an injection, or we give it as a continuous infusion at a half a milligram per kilogram per hour. And we know from some research that was done quite some time ago now um, th- that we will see a normalisation of those patients' ACTH levels within three hours of starting the hydrocortisone infusion. I'm not aware of the data about what ACTH does after you give them DEX. I'm sure it's going to normalise pretty quickly as well. But but at least there's no indication, as sometimes has been suggested to me, that there's a long delay between that. And, um, yeah, dexamethasone's on the shelf and dexamethasone's OK. But hydrocortisone, I think, is likely to be a more physiological, a more gentle improvement. Um, my personal experience has been that they respond more consistently and more effectively. I'm interested to see that if you had... If you were a human and you had hypoadrenocorticism, then you would absolute acute hypoadrenocorticism. You absolutely get treated with a cortisone infusion in hospital rather than dexamethasone. So, um, for all those reasons, but it, Hattie and I aren't going to fall out over it. I'm sure um, if, if dexamethasone is one and hydrocortisone is another, I um, I guess what we should say to people listening to the podcast is give them a try. Um, or if you really feel good, um, give us some money and we'll run a clinical trial to compare patients getting DEX versus patients getting hydrocortisone. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to come up with a, a, a suitable funding source for that study, one that we would really love to do. So it would be a, it would be a good study. Um, so, so you could ask that move it, moving on then. So, so once we're happy that they've had some of steroid of, of your choice. So how, how do you transition them more their long-term management? What's your, what, what is your ideal way to manage these more long-term? So, so transitioning them, I think is obviously is uh, by case by case basis, but, but my usual um, feeling is that is once, once I'm happy that they're eating and they're drinking, 
Um, so you can be, I guess, as comfortable as you can be on a clinical criteria that the gastrointestinal tract is going to be an effective source of of absorption, then we transition them to oral medication and taper their cortisone infusion over 24 to 48 hours. And I imagine you'd you'd be happy with that same sort of thing, Hattie. Um, And then it gets to this question of, of, um, in our patient that is a typical hypoadrenocorticoid patient, what we want to do in terms of mineralocorticoid replacement and... um, and glucocorticoid replacement. So I'll, I'll kick the ball off by saying what I'd like to do is to make sure whatever we do, we don't give them too much glucocorticoid because we're going to set them off on a, on a life of glucocorticoid supplementation. And what, even though we might, be, um, we might not be overdosing them significantly or we might not be giving them more glucocorticoid than they need for maintenance, if they're going to be on it every day for the next 10 years and we overdose a little bit, that can substantially contribute to an overdosage over a period of time. So if the dog is less than 20 kilos, I think it's very difficult to not potentially overdose them using prednisolone. So I'd like to suggest, if at all possible, and here's non-pragmatic solution, we use cortisone. Um, two types of cortisone, 25 milligram tablets five milli- and 10 milligram tablets. They're definitely more expensive than prednisolone. And we use a dose of a half a milligram per kilogram of cortisone um, twice a day while they're in hospital and then down to once a day. And we're gonna, we can talk about the DOCP slash Florinef um, story in a minute, but we probably should get Hattie's, um, not necessarily view on my, my selection, but her <laughs> own opinion. I, I'm, and I'm using... The reason I'm, I'm suggesting that is because the information I have from some time ago that I've found in the literature is that is that the glucocorticoid production of a normal adrenal gland in a dog is producing around 0.2 mg per kg per day of cortisol and PRED has five times the glucocorticoid potency of cortisol. So that would mean a 10 kilo dog would require about 0.4 milligrams of prednisolone a day. And, finally... Which would be half of a one milligram tablet. Which would be half of a one milligram tablet for a 10 kilo dog. But, of course, the PRED would have no glucocorticoid potency, whereas the cortisone would have... This would have, sorry, no mineralocorticoid activity or minimal mineralocorticoid activity, whereas the cortisone tablet, which would get converted to cortisol, would have equipotent glucocorticoid and mineralocorticoid activity. But to me, that's... That's actually irrelevant because because even even in your most wildest assertions, you wouldn't you wouldn't suggest that the the cortisone was going to provide the whole mineralocorticoid requirements for the dog, would you? No. So you're going to have to give it a mineralocorticoid anyway. Yeah. So in that setting, I think whether the drug has any. Um, mineralocorticoid activity is is irrelevant except perhaps in your dose calculations and in your yeah no i i I absolutely that's true the the problem um i guess for me is it, it brings us into an area where i'm not completely sure of which is and maybe we won't see it as much now with docp being a much more ubiquitous product but 
What 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 I used to definitely see in chronically treated hypo A patients was what I what we call Florinef creep, where they'd come in and their potassium was too high, so people would get exercised about that and start increasing the Florinef. And and so you found sometimes where you get phoned up for a consult on a hypo A patient that that they were on quite high doses of Florinef and on Pred, and I could never really work out why that was happening. The one explanation, obviously, is that they're getting too much Pred, and because steroids are tachyphylactic, they're increasing their metabolism of Pred to help them not be hyperadrenocorticoid, if you like, and that's also accelerated the metabolism of Florinef, um, and so they need more. But but that that um, gradual increase in the Florinef dose seemed to not happen anywhere near as frequently if they were managed with cortisone and Florinef rather than prednisone and Florinef. So, so one explanation could be the tachyphylaxis. Another explanation could be that we're getting um, uh, some level of, of uh, joint mineralocorticoid supplementation by the two tablets, or by the two, sorry, two um, hormones that we're supplementing the animals with, or something else that we don't really know. And it's certainly, it's, it's certainly not something that I feel, it's not the mineralocorticoid component of it that I feel passionate about. Um, or exercised about. I, in fact, I shouldn't feel passionate about any of it. I should just be scientific about it. I, I think it's easier in dogs less than 10 kilos to avoid potential glucocorticoid overdosing by giving them cortisone. But that's not going to be for everybody for sure because the difference in price is absolutely not inconsequential. So where I think we do agree is that in in the patients that we used to manage with Fluorinef, there were definitely some patients that you would see that were on a, a large dose of Fluorinef in an attempt to normalise their electrolytes that actually, even if they weren't getting additional prednisone, actually were Cushingoid as a, as a consequence of the medication. And in fact... Before we had a licensed DOCB formulation in this country, I, w- I did occasionally order in on an STA um, drug from from the states because obviously it was available there as per court and fee for quite a, for, for for many years. Long time, yeah. um, As because did I. because occasionally you would have you would have these dogs that actually. To, to provide their mineral corticoid requirement, you actually ended up seemingly making them Cushingoid. And, and those dogs seem to do much better on injectable. Um, if I change tack a little bit, I think one of the things that is interesting is when we dose dogs with Fluorinef, or fludrocortisone, I should say, rather than trade name, but the, yeah, when we... Sorry. When we when we dosed with that, um, we did tend to put them on a dose of that and then incrementally increase if the electrolytes weren't normalised. What we seem to be doing now with the injectable product is to actually give them a very large dose of that and then potentially consider if the electrolytes are 
like if the potassium is low, then actually backing down on that dose. But I think the problem with that is that actually risks overdosing many patients by doing that because you give them a mineralocorticoid and actually what that does is it volume expands the patient. So the sodium concentration, you wouldn't really... You wouldn't expect it to change because the sodium is going to be retained, but it's going to retain water as well. And so actually you can measure electrolytes and they can look relatively normal. But what you have no very easy way to determine is actually that these patients are inappropriately volume expanded. And if you think back to the days when we were giving these patients fluorinef, yeah, sometimes the owners would be a little bit. Ooh, does this does this mean something bad is happening when you needed to over when you needed to increase the dose of the drug? But actually, it it was rare for a dog to have a crisis whilst it was already receiving medication. You know, there was some adjustment that was needed, and maybe the sodium and potassium weren't quite where you wanted them, and maybe the dog wasn't optimal, but they weren't having another crisis so it was it's to my mind it's actually better to risk underdosing them a little bit with the mineralocorticoid and then to eat the dose up yeah, rather than I, I, I to to work totally, it in the opposite direction totally agree totally agree where we where you might not agree with so as i totally agree with it that's why i try and use cortisone rather than prednisolone <laughs> Because I'm going to have a little bit of glucocorticoid and mineralocorticoid. So I'm going to have a bit of mineralocorticoid with my glucocorticoid cortisone. But I'm not. No. Uh, no. Okay. Well, I, that's <laughs> you, what you I think. Can't you can't persuade me. I'm sure I can't. That, but I absolutely agree with what you're saying about the issue with with uh, with DOCP. I, I, I think for a number of perhaps understandable reasons. And, but, but disappointing ones, what we see now in the UK recommendation for DOCP is a dose rate that is really going to be too high for many dogs. There'll be almost certainly the odd dog that requires it to be that high. But, but just as you say, the, the idea is, well, let's at all costs avoid the outside possibility of some form of Addisonian crisis, so we'll absolutely give them a tsunami sort of dose of, of um, DOCP, mineralocorticoid, to make sure we avoid it. And you make an excellent point, which is even when they were a bit mineralocorticoid deficient when we were dealing with Florinef, they never had... That's not a life-threatening sort of situation, um, especially if they're getting some glucocorticoid, and let's agree whether it's cortisone or pred, it doesn't matter. As long as they got some of that on board, the likelihood of them having a critical collapse scenario is very low indeed so so you have the luxury almost when you're giving them the glucocorticoid to be uh, to, to be conservative in determining the mineralocorticoid dose and and what is worth saying is that is that certainly I think in our collective experience one point um, well 2.2 1.8 to 2.2 milligrams per kilogram every 25 days is likely to be way too much DOCP in the majority of dogs. And so that's why I think we should really be, as a collective, seriously considering not dosing them that high, but dosing them at a lower dose rate and using 
obviously a supplementary glucocorticoid, bearing in mind, and I'll, I'll introduce it now, I think, is that, that although the, the product sheet and, and a lot of the textbooks would suggest that DOCP has no glucocorticoid activity, it is worth, worth bearing in mind that deoxycorticosterone is the precursor of corticosterone and corticosterone is converted from deoxycorticosterone by 11-hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase type 1, which is a ubiquitous enzyme in the tissues. So even though the patient might be Addisonian and have no adrenal cortical 11-HSD1, uh, they've got 11-HSD1 in plenty of places and it gets converted to corticosterone and no one is under any illusions that corticosterone has glucocorticoid activity. So leaving aside the debate about whether or not DOC pivolate or any other ester has glucocorticoid activity. Once it's in the dog, it's going to provide some glucocorticoid activity. Um, and so it's a shame that, that that sort of blanket, this has no glucocorticoid activity mantra has followed DOCP around for a while because it's, it's, not, uh, it's not really doing it justice. If, if, if there was one drug you might think you could get away with as one drug to treat a dog that's got glucocorticoid, mineralocorticoid deficiency, it would be DOCP because it'll give you more than enough mineralocorticoid and possibly enough glucocorticoid, but we haven't given it a chance really to, to decide on that. Do you, uh, um, so yeah, it's basically what you're trying to say, again, they get a double hit, so if you give them prednisone or hydrocortisone as well as DOCP, they're probably going to have far more uh, glucocorticoid activity than they need. Well, well they, they definitely would be potentially likely to be awash with glucocorticoid if you use a very, if you use the recommended dose rate of DOCP. I, I think that that is... Um, almost certainly a significant concern, if I can put it like that. So, do you, what, what sort of starting rate, or could you have a consensus of what you what you start them off with? Is it a in terms of DOCP? Yeah. Um, well, I'll I'll look at Hattie and say see whether she. I, I would. I, I've been using it on and off for a long time, but not as DOCP, not as um, not as sorry, not as uh, zycortal, but as per quartan because we used to use it in Australia as an import as well um, and my normal regime is somewhere between 1 and 1.5 mix per kg um, for weekly um, and I don't know where you put that there or maybe maybe just a bit higher um, I've had a couple of other people have told me their starting point is 1.5 and, and they tend to come down a little bit sometimes I it, it 1 to 1.5 is where I put it for with a big dog being 1 and a small dog being 1.5 but the number that I had that I sort of have used and this has to be said to be to be at an, a limited extent is is sort of about 1.4 as a starting well, that's, in the, that's right that's in the middle so. uh, yeah and that's, <laughs> we've got some consensus <laughs> well, lots of consensus yes so, so you, did you did you find that Addy, in, in the in the states when you were working there that uh, people gave a, a lot of DOCP or or did you not find this as a... um, people were using per court and V and uh, and to be fair I mean most of the most of the dogs that I was exposed to there were were given it at label doses which was 
which was a similarly high dose to to that that has been licensed here um it's i guess with the benefit of hindsight and with the benefit of working with fluorinef and and actually a couple of patients that were probably specific cases in point um so i'm not i'm not in any way suggesting that they develop problems purely because of because of the mineralocorticoid dosing but but we have had patients coming through the hospital that have primary glomerular disease that have developed nephrotic syndrome I mean it was unfortunate patients having sort of two diseases but it did sort of accentuate to me that the underlying um, physiology and make me sort of reconsider what it was that we were what we were doing and what we were trying to achieve and so, so you're happy with uh, with David's uh, DOCP dose, but uh, what, what do you think about the, the hydrocortisone tablets? Well, I think what David has perhaps uh, emphasised is actually that we just need some smaller prednisone tablets. So if anybody from any of the pharmaceutical companies is listening, you know, it's got to be pretty easy to make some, I don't know, quarter of a milligram pred tablets, and that would solve the problem. <laughs> would you be, we'd be happy if... Uh, if companies did do that, yeah, I'd be deliriously happy. I, I, I'm, I, I'd be happy also to con- try and convince them if they were thinking about um, firing up to make quarter of a milligram pred tablets, they could probably make some veterinary cortisone tablets and make them cheaper as well. So that would be an, an equal, uh, well, not necessarily an equal. It would be. Uh, I like the idea of being able to give um, uh, cortisol because the dog's missing out on cortisol. So rather than give it something else, um, it's missing out on cortisol. So, uh, but but I absolutely concede that that um, prednisolone does a, a good job as long as we don't use it to excess. Um, and I I guess I'm just disappointed that the dose rate continues to be rec- the dose rate for maintenance glucocorticoid um, prednisone um, tends to be, in my opinion really too high and although it won't necessarily show any problems in the first month two months three months I think it genuinely has the capacity to show problems when they're being managed like that for years which is likely to be hopefully likely to be the situation with um with a hypoadrenocorticoid patient is it's it should be an eminently treatable uh, satisfactorily treatable disease well Thank you very much. Do you have any uh, any final comments, either of you, uh, um, to uh, to to wrap this up, or or should we uh, leave it there? I know you're both incredibly busy. No, no. It's just uh, thank you for the opportunity for yet again for Hattie and I to have a discussion about management of hypoadrenocorticism. It's always a pleasure. Well, I, I think these are these are great, and I I, uh, I enjoy them very very much because I think it's good to to, to have a, a debate about. Before, as you're wrapping up, I probably should say one thing that we we possibly also just should mention is, in terms of monitoring their glucocorticoid and their mineralocorticoid activity, everybody's happy that we should monitor their electrolytes for their mineralocorticoid activity. Um, I'm not. I think I think we're not necessarily as one on this, so we should probably just throw that out at the end before you get all chummy and wrap it up. Is is that, that I like to use the the leucogram 
um, on a patient when I'm monitoring them. I like to use the leukogram to give me an idea whether I have glucocorticoid excess or glucocorticoid deficiency because I want to see the lymphocytes and the eosinophils there as opposed to if the animal's got a stress leukogram and I'm treating it with um, PRED, then I'm thinking I'm probably giving it too much PRED. Or if I'm treating it with whatever I'm treating it with, DOCP and cortisone, I might be giving it too much of something. So, so the leukogram gives me a probably not fantastic, but nevertheless the best I've got easily, biomarker for glucocorticoid activity in the dog. Whereas I think that's a 50-pound test when what you could use is your clinical acumen. So what I tell the students about managing an, an Addisonian patient is it's the perfect emblem of veterinary medicine because it's the art and the science all wrapped into one. So you've got mineralocorticoid replacement, so you measure the electrolytes and you adjust your dose of DOCP on the basis of what those are. And then there's the art of veterinary medicine, which is you look at the patient and if the patient isn't 100%, then you've got to be looking at it and going, mm, is it a bit poopy, a bit flat, not, not finishing its dinner, it's a little bit Addisonian? Or is it a bit sluggish, fat, tick-like, slowing down, a little bit cushingoid? And, and there's a real nuance there. You would say that the uh, the sensitivity of that is probably um, quite variable, though, I'd, I'd imagine. Well, and you, I don't know. I mean, I guess we'd have to look at to see if hematology, lymphocyte, uh, whether that is better. I think, you're, I think you're sort of underselling clinical acumen. Oh, no, no, I think it's important, but I suppose like, is there a more like, sensitive way to, to try and identify those, those patients rather than when they're actually showing clinical signs? Have we, have we overcooked them or undercooked them at that point? I suppose that's what I Well, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm throwing those things out there as an example, but I think, you, I think that what the patient's doing and what the patient's telling you is, is really important. And and that's what I use to to guide my mm. glucocorticoid. But I suppose not many people would look... Do you, or do you think many people do look at the leukogram for monitoring how much? Um, I, I, I really don't know the answer to that yeah. question. We, that is definitely something we should use maybe vet compass to to help us look for I, I would have thought it's not well certainly i don't think it's as common practice as looking at the electrolytes and um i, I think it had his point earlier on is is an exemplar of that is so you keep on looking at the electrolytes and changing the mineralocorticoid particularly if it was florinef to try and fix the high particularly the high potassium as it just kept on going, and no one was sort of... If, if someone had actually looked at the leukogram and thought, oh, it's got a stress leukogram, maybe they wouldn't have been worried about it, but then maybe they all sort of said, you know, hang on a minute, something's a bit funny going on here. So, but I, it, it, it's just... Uh, I think that one is... Um, the more experience you get with managing hypoadrenocorticoid patients as had he is, then the better you get, and you don't need those sorts of tests, but that's true of, of, of clinical acumen and experience over time. I just think it's worth mentioning to the audience that that there is that opportunity if you want to get some sort of semi-quantitative evaluation of glucocorticoid levels on board 
the best biomarker you've got, in fact, the only one other than an ACTH level, which is sort of, is going to be the leukogram. But you can look at the glucocorticoid that way. Well, thank you both very much for your uh, for your time and uh, and you know managing to uh, come together at the same time. That's uh, that's very good, and I'm sure that will um, provide uh, lots more questions and answers, which is which is really what we want uh, when people when people listen to this. So we'll wrap it up there, and thank you both uh, very much for your for your time and attendance. Thanks very much for the thank invitation, you. Tom. Thank you very much. Many thanks again for you to, for listening. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device, and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. If you could leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast uh, or, or on Acast, that would be that would be great, Tim. We found a found a new home on, on Acast, for, so for anybody with um, Android phones, that's that's a way to, to find us. So don't forget to tell your friends, friends, any friends, really, that would be fine. Um, and we'll place some show notes to the RVC pages. So just type in RVC Clinical Podcast into search engine and it should be top of the tree so if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast please get in touch so you can either email me dbarfield.rvc.ac.uk or tweet at dombarfield until next time bye bye